Okay, well, let's go ahead and get a uh, start here tonight at 7 o'clock. And uh, want to keep uh, our progress going here. So let me see here. Ken, would you open us in prayer? Sure. Right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight, uh, Lord, to learn more about your word and, and uh, how it applies our lives. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the people here. And uh, we thank you for Mark uh, teaching his class. Lord, be with those that couldn't be here tonight for whatever reason. And, and we just pray that, uh, again, you'll lead us and open our minds to your word. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Okay, threw in a long one this year, this time. Let's go ahead and go through these. Number one, when Adam sinned, mankind ceased to be the image of God. False. What would you say? To make that true, other than put a knot in there. But <laughs> Saved and unsaved are, are his image bearers. Correct. Yeah. So we're, we we re, remain his image bearers. Something is lost, mm-hmm. but what the, the thing that is lost is not the image. It's uh, or the, uh, the perfections or the potential perfections uh, that Adam had. Those those are the things that are lost. But we're still the image of God because the image of God is what. Right, so the capacities or functions that make one a person, okay? And so as long as you retain those, so again, Adam didn't fall to stumbling and mumbling when he when he sinned. He still had the capacity to speak and still had the capacity to think and, and all that. So, uh, so those weren't lost. Now, sin does occlude those kinds of things in a general sense, but the image of God is not lost. So if people are dead in trespasses and sin, what good can it possibly do to share the gospel with them? So they can still understand the words. There's nothing wrong with the Jews or just God needs to change their nature. Bingo. Very good. So that was the difference between natural freedom and moral freedom. Uh, All persons have natural freedom, that is, the ability to choose according to their most dominant impulse. The problem is not that the chooser is broken, as you said here, but rather that the dominant impulse that flows from your fallen nature is that is what is broken. And so uh, that's where the uh, the deadness lies. It's not as though you're just a brick wall, inert. Uh, death doesn't uh, mean that. Okay. Number three, because Adam had a free will, we know that God is not sovereign over the entry of sin into the universe. False, so why? Well, he knew, he knew everything that was going to happen, so he knew he created perfectly, but he knew he was going to fall. Did he just know? Is that, is, that, is that as far as you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> when we read, it says he foreknew and foreordained and... Okay. He provided a way out, and then if you take the way out, you're going to be justified and eventually glorified. But at the same time, well, your, your point is well taken. 
that he not only saw this in advance, he ordained it in advance. So, uh, so God is sovereign over the entry of sin into the universe. Uh, we don't want to say that he is the author of sin or the one who produces sin. Nonetheless, uh, we don't want to we don't want to put sin outside of the control of God. When we do that. We really set ourselves up for uh, for major problems. Here. Okay. Which of the following is true about Adam and Eve? All of them are true. So he was created very good. That's exactly what it says at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. He was able not to sin. That is in a natural sense. Now, uh, there is perhaps a sense in which you could have said that was false, uh, depending on how you qualified it, uh, because there's a sense in which, as was said, God... Uh, for ordaining what would happen before the foundation of the world, knew that it wouldn't be that way, ordained that it wouldn't be that way. At the same time, if we're talking about natural ability, uh, that would uh, that would have been moral ability. He was born with that moral freedom. He was created with great intelligence. Yes, that's true. In fact, uh, this is opposite what we might expect from evolutionary theory, which says you sort of go go from really dumb to really smart. Uh, cavemen to uh, to uh, uh, you know, Wall House uh, Wall Street executives, um, but it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, Adam was a very intelligent person, probably the most intelligent being that ever has lived, because he uh, did not have the debility of you know thermodynamics, the collapse of of all things, the tendency of all things to decay. And so, when he's given the dominion mandate, which is our topic for the night, uh, he was capable of handling the responsibilities that God gave to him. So that's where we are tonight, page 25 in your notes. Man's relationship to the rest of the universe, the dominion mandate. So we want to talk about what this dominion mandate is, uh, what are its implications uh, for uh, for for science and industry, and then what are its what's the what what's the state of this uh, Dominion mandate today? Is it still in effect? So let's let's look at this. Genesis 1, 28, 29, 30 are really uh, where this is detailed out, and uh, we'll look at that. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, said to them, "Be fruitful." Increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that lives and moves on the ground. I also give to you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They are yours for food. Okay? We also find something of the uh, dominion mandate wrapped up in Psalm 8, a psalm of praise about creation. You made him, that's mankind, you made Adam initially, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the seeds. So this is this is the dominion mandate. It tells us our relationship to the rest of the universe and our responsibilities toward the rest of the universe. 
So let's see if we can't walk through this and see uh, what the implications are for us. First, we find here that mankind is to subdue the earth. Subdue the earth. Uh, I put down uh, the uh, Hebrew word there, but most of you can't read the Hebrew. But what is what does it say? The word is actually kabash. Okay? And yes, that's where the word comes from, right? Put the kibosh on something. So you're to subdue the earth. It's rather a strong term, okay? Uh, Just as kibosh is, you know, you sort of hold it down, you know, keep it in line. And that's the word here that's used, and it's a very strong word. This is the idea here is that of utilitarian mastery. It's the responsibility of man to bring the creation into benevolent bondage. You say those two words don't fit together, but I, that's I tried. I'm trying to make make us understand what's what's to do. I mean, the term is something of is is perhaps you could even say enslave the world, but it's a benevolent slavery. So 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 make it do what it's supposed to do in order to serve mankind. In fact, that's what the whole earth is designed for to serve mankind. You know. I, just read yesterday uh, about uh, another one of these very intelligent uh, professors somewhere in Europe uh, who made the the argument that uh, we ought that humans ought to go extinct for the sake of the planet. Okay, hey, you know, that's your first response. You know, you first, right? But 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 what what this shows is a fundamental misunderstanding of the creation. We're not here for the world. The world is here for us. You know, the, the, the whole creation week is sort of pointed towards this climax of the creation of mankind. We're the ruler. We're the we're the we're the utilitarian owners and facilitators of everything that's here. Everything that was created was created for us. We weren't created. For it now, of course, there is something of a symbiotic relationship here. But the fact is, the world was created for us, not us for the world. We don't get out of the way so that the world can survive. Uh, we're, we're, the, the world is here for us, so it's the responsibility of man then to bring the creation into benevolent bondage and to take advantage of its resources. Specifically mentioned here are the Earth's biological resources. The Plants and the animals, okay? Rule the animals. Eat the plants. But also implied here is rulership over the spheres in which these resources reside, including the land, the seas, the minerals, all other natural resources. And I think what we have here is all of the disciplines of scientific endeavor here. So horticulture and agriculture, you know, you know, organize the, the the plants and make them as productive as possible, husbandry, but also the natural sciences, technology, uh, the, the hard sciences, trying to, to figure out how to use the resources that are here to the very best of our ability and for our best advantage. Okay, so that's that's the uh, that's the you know that's the key verb here of the Dominion mandate. Subdue the earth. Uh, it sort of flies in the face of of the uh, relationship that uh, is politically correct to have with the earth right now. Uh, And and I recognize that there has been some abuse of the world, and that's not something that we want to celebrate, certainly. 
At the same time, we don't want to overreact to that to the point uh, where the earth is here for the earth's sake. Okay? The earth is here for our sake. Okay. So the question here that sometimes comes up, do we have an ecological mandate? So is, is part of, of the dominion mandate an ecological mandate? Well, I say here because the modern-day environmental movement is laced with presuppositions that are opposed to the Christian scripture, such as evolution, uniformitarianism, idolatry even, atheistic doomsday forecasts that we sometimes hear and the like, there is sometimes a temptation to dismiss all environmental concern out of hand. And, and uh, you know, perhaps you've participated in that. You know, you, you, you start rolling your eyes at how bizarre uh, the, uh, the environmentalists have become that we almost, you know, on, on Earth Day, you want to take some aerosol cans and spray them just for, you know, to, to you know, to vent or something. But And there, there's there's probably something in us that uh, perhaps wants, makes us want to do that. But that, that probably shouldn't be our response. There is a real sense in which subduing the Earth demands the faithful management of Earth's resources for the glory of God and for the sake of mankind. It's the sake of future generations of mankind, if I can say it that way. We do have confidence that mismanagement of the earth will never leave it uninhabitable. Uh, that's the promise in Genesis 8, right? As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night, all these things are going to continue. God's never going to let things collapse to the degree uh, that the earth becomes uninhabitable, uh, but at the same time, it is possible, even though the earth is very resilient uh, because of God's design of it, man's failure to subdue the earth properly is an act of unfaithful stewardship, which can lead to want, to loss, to disease and death, tarnished beauty, and generally disagreeable living conditions. It would seem that the avoidance of these things falls within the scope of the dominion mandate. So, I, I, I you know, I, I, I hear the uh, the exasperation and the frustration that sometimes we have uh, with those who have just sort of gone berserk over this issue. At the same time, we can't we can't just you know pendulum swing the opposite way. Uh, there is a, there is a there is a sense of responsibility that God has given to us for our earth, and we need to collectively make sure we're taking care of it. So uh, there is a place for that in, in society. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Okay. That's good. We won't hear that very much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're supposed to subdue the earth. Rule over every living creature, and this is based on the fact that we're the image of God. We are we have superior intellect, and so therefore we rule over the animals and even have the authority ultimately to preside over their life or death uh, once the uh, once the Noahic covenant is put in place. Now that's not part of the original uh, dominion mandate, but eventually we get that authority. We get get that responsibility. Animals are specifically listed as being created to serve the civil interests of men. They have no moral or civil rights of their own, 
because they are not moral or civil beings. They're animals. Um, in fact, when we uh, we go to Matthew, you know, God God clothes the uh, grass of the field and takes care of them. But then, what's the what's the qualification? You are of much greater value than they. Okay, so people are more valuable than plants. People are more valuable than animals. Now, we do have a responsibility to rule animals with benevolence. You know, uh, Proverbs twelve: the the wise man has has uh, has has thought for the condition of his animals, takes care of his animals, doesn't abuse animals. But this has more to do with the civil character of man than the civil rights of animals. It's not as though the animals have rights per se. Uh, it's rather that we have civil responsibilities because we're the image of God. So we should have kindness and benevolence in our hearts, even towards animals. Okay? And, and even those of us who go out hunting, certainly an appropriate thing. God expects us to to engage in these kinds of things and uh, it seems like we ought to enjoy it nonetheless there is a sense in which uh, that can you can you can abuse that privilege um, and uh, do things wantonly and cruelly and, and such and, and that's not that's not supposed to be what we that's not what we're supposed to be doing so again which similar to this whole ecological mandate, there has been something of an overreaction that we have made to, you know, to the folks out there who imagine the, the PETA people who are, who are, who somehow imagine animals to be equal or greater than humans. No, <laughs> wipe that off of your theological thinking. At the same time, that doesn't allow us to engage in abuse uh, in in response to that. So something very similar to what we just saw with the whole ecological mandate. So, what's the present state of this dominion mandate? Do we still have the responsibilities that are here? Well, the fall has severely hampered man's ability to fulfill the mandate. Now, Hebrews 2, you crowned him with glory and honor. This is, this is the author of Hebrews pointing back to, uh, to Genesis, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 8. Uh, you crowned him with glory and honor, put everything under his feet, but, in putting everything under his feet, God left nothing that was not subject to him. But at present, we don't see everything subject to him. So the earth is a bit out of control. Why is that? Well, it's because of the fall. Uh, agriculture and horticulture are hampered by the introduction of thorns and thistles. That's the fall, right? It makes it really hard for man to do his job. And uh, specifically, the job that Adam had to till a garden was made difficult. Difficult. Animal husbandry is hampered by the loss of animalian docility, probably in part after the fall, but certainly after the flood. The animals don't comply. Okay? In fact, many animals will just run off. Okay. Uh, so that it's it's difficult to do those things. Even man's suitable helper, right? Eve. His first and greatest civil responsibility. I mean, he, this is this is the first thing that he is to rule over in benevolence. Well, she becomes prone to prone to turns against him uh, in her thirst to share his authority, leading to violent reciprocation, which escalates right. It's a, it's a it's a downward spiral. 
Uh, the, uh, the woman doesn't want to be subdued uh, by the man because the man subdues in a, in a violent and a, in a, in a, in a callous way. And so, you know, that, that tends to exacerbate. You know, she, she does not submit. He, he becomes more and more aggressive and abusive, and it just, you've seen people, have seen this happen many times, of course, in your life, because that's what the fall does. It makes the dominion mandate very difficult. And the effects of the fall extend to all creation. All creation groans, waiting for what? The redemption, the resurrection and redemption of the sons of men. Okay? So once the resurrection takes takes place and the restoration of all things takes place, the whole creation breathes a sigh of relief because it's back the way it's supposed to be and uh, the dominion mandate can then be carried out uh, in, 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 in great joy. Okay? So it's hampered by man's ability to, to fulfill it, but it still continues. In fact, it even expands in Genesis 9. God gives even more responsibilities to mankind as time goes on. But with the following clarifications, and this, this is very important to us here, the mandate, the dominion mandate, is a civil mandate. Okay, It's a civil mandate. It is a mandate given to mankind generally and civilly, not to mankind spiritually or as a church. I think it's really important that we keep those things distinct in our, in our minds. There is a mission that mankind collectively has. There is a mission that organized Christianity has in the form of churches. And those responsibilities uh, don't, don't overlap. Okay, the mission of mankind and the mission of the church are different. Um, so the dominion mandate is given to humanity generally, but not to their religious institutions. Now, the church has no social or cultural mandate to fulfill. So it's, it's not the church's responsibility to you know, teach the poor folk in, in Africa how to plant gardens and, and to dig wells and, 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 and the like. You know, it's not the church's responsibility to carry out the dominion mandate throughout the world. Okay, That's not the responsibility of the church. It's the, that's the responsibility of mankind collectively. Now, this doesn't mean that individual Christians are to cloak their biblical mores and moorings in the civil sphere. Okay, So you as Christians should be good stewards of whatever God has given you to do. Now, we should be uh, we should ply our skills as best we can in industry, politics, education, art, in our community. But it's not the church's responsibility to establish a Christian culture. Okay, that's that's not the role of the church. Uh, the function of the church towards those with who are without is what. What's our responsibility to those who are outside of our walls? Present the gospel. Present the gospel, yes. So evangelism. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be neighborly as an individual. And I, and I certainly don't want to 
uh, give the sense that because it's not the church's responsibility to do these things, that it's nobody's responsibility. It is the Christian's responsibility to be neighborly, uh, to be a good worker, to be a good parent, to be a good teacher, whatever, student, whatever you happen to be in life, you should be the best that you possibly can be. But recognize that much of what you do is in the civil sphere. And it's not it's not a church responsibility. It just becomes rather important for us, right? When when we're in a uh, in an election year, right? Uh, we 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 uh, we sometimes can blur that line, and to our own detriment, right? You know, we we, we come to come to church and we want to talk about politics because that's what we've done that already tonight, right? Uh, we, 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 we come to church and we want to talk about politics because that's what we're doing out there in the civil sphere and there's a debate going on tonight in Las Vegas and we all want to watch it and we want to see what happens and, 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 and so what, what can, can tend to happen is uh, that we merge those things, okay? So our politics then, which is really, I mean, of, of all things, it's a civil matter, gets brought into the ecclesia, into the church, where really they should be kept apart. It's not that you can't talk about politics, or, but it's, it's not as though you can't say anything about politics or about your kids or about the football game when you're at church. But that's not, that's not the primary place where we should be done. It certainly shouldn't be a place uh, where we're standing in places of authority, such as teachers and preachers, whereby we're trying to, to press certain civil agendas. That's that's not the responsibility of the church. So it's important that we do that. And and part of the reason is for the very reason we've said. The, the, the primary function of the church towards those which are without is evangelism. And if we get too much of the civil into our ecclesiastical assemblies, what it does is alienates a whole group of people that we're charged with giving the gospel to. Well, sometimes shouldn't the church sometimes take a stand at issues like abortion and sure, you know, moral issues. Now, yes, yeah, but moral. Right. Okay. You bring up a very good point. When the Bible speaks to something, we can say what the Bible says. Okay. So there, there's no no problem with that. I I don't think there's any problem with someone, you know, opening up, you know, Exodus 22 and pointing out that it very firmly teaches that abortion is wrong, okay? And furthermore, you can even say that, you know, the Bible says that the primary function, I mean, we've said it already tonight, Genesis 9, what's the primary function of, of human government? Protect life, right. So, I mean, there, there is a sense in which you can say that legitimately, and you can speak into people's civil civil you know, responsibilities. At the same time, it's not the uh, the church's responsibility to say anything more than what the scriptures say. Okay, so, yes. I have down here five different options about the relationship of the organized church to the culture. These were put together by a fellow by the name of H. Richard Niebuhr in a book, Christ and Culture. 60 or 70 years ago now, in which he outlined five approaches of Christ to culture. Uh, read here, perhaps, the church and culture. 
And I think it's important that we look at these and make sure we're 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 we're, we're doing what's what God's expectation is. Okay. Our our governing text would be from John 17. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Right. Okay. So that's that's the that's that's the paradox. That's the tension we're trying to maintain. Right. So what are the options here? Well, we've got Christ against culture. This is an isolationist position. This, this, uh, those who hold this suggest that culture is corrupt and to be avoided, even opposed. Christ and his followers should function as a counterculture, a new and separated community within culture, and our primary example here is the Amish. Okay, so... Uh, basically what these folks do is forego the responsibility that Christ gives us to be in the world. We do have to be in the world. Not to be of the world, but we do have to be in the world, and we do have to be persisting in uh, maintaining this dominion mandate. So we do have to be in the world, working together with mankind collectively to get things done. Okay, So this approach is, is inappropriate. Uh, Christ against culture. Probably the Amish are the most obvious example here, but you know you've you've probably seen even within a very conservative uh, evangelical life, uh, a fundamentalist life, that some of those tendencies that have been there. Uh, you know, I grew up in a in a situation where you know I I didn't know anybody who wasn't a Christian. You know, it was one of those things where. It's, it's not a good idea for you to know people who are unbelievers. So you, we went to church on Sunday, we went to Christian school on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we played sports with other Christian groups. And, and you know, when it was all said and done, about the only time I saw somebody who was an unbeliever is when I waved over to the fence to my neighbor. And even even that was, you know, I don't want to spend too much time doing that kind of thing. So it... And then that's that's this whole idea of a Christ against culture, and we certainly don't want to be engaged in that. Let me let, let me go to the very the bottom one though. We're actually, on the top of the next page here, Christ of culture is sort of the opposite extreme. They go in, so let's establish the poles and then try and fill in the middle. Christ of culture is the opposite. This is being in the world and of the world. Right, the command is be in the world but not of it. The first one is neither in nor of. The last one is both in and of. Okay, Neither one will work. So the Christ of culture approach suggests that culture is uniformly good, positively informs the religious expressions of Christ and his followers. Say if the culture says that we ought to be doing X in church, then we ought to do it. If, if, if the culture says this is politically correct way to worship, then we ought to worship that way. And, and of course, you've, you've seen what that has done to the Christian religion, where, where, that has, where that kind of thing has occurred. I think we need to be worried about that, concerned about that, too. That's, that's, that's equally wrong. It's oppositely wrong, but it's equally wrong. Which brings us then to the three in the middle, uh, which are more fruitful, but none of them is, well, I think one is better than the rest. Let's, let's look at uh, Christ transforming culture. This is what we typically find among the Reformed. The idea here is that culture is damaged, but it's salvageable 
and capable of ultimate redemption with the church of Christ at the helm. Okay? So the idea here is that the church is going to go out and redeem culture. And that's kind of sort of a catchphrase that you saw. We're redeeming culture as the mission of the church. And so uh, particularly uh, think about the 19th century or reform post-millennialism, what was going on? Well, uh, we know that the world is eventually going to re- reach a utopia where there isn't any disease. So what should the church do to precipitate that? Well, build hospitals. And so you, to this day, you have church-sponsored hospitals dotting the country. Okay. We know there's going to be a day in which there are no orphans or widows. So what should the church be doing in the meantime? Well, we ought to be opening orphanages and funding them and so on and so forth. And so the, the anticipation that of, of what is going to be in the kingdom, which Christ is going to establish supernaturally, the church ends up trying to do, if I can put it this way, naturally. Okay. Um, and so what ends up happening is the, the mission of the church is diverted away from the gospel evangelism, and it becomes social. Okay, And so what ends up happening during the 19th century is what we end up with, the social gospel, right? Okay, So what, what happens there? Well, the social functions of the church became so dominant that the evangelistic function, you know, the, the, the evangel itself, the gospel message, becomes suppressed. And this becomes the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that the church has come to help you. Okay? Um, and so that, that while there's, there's, there's modicums of truth here that are starting to emerge here, that there is a sense in which uh, when, when Christianity flourishes, culture rises with it, but that's not because it's the mission of the church. That's more incidental to people being Christians. Okay. Thirdly, uh, the one in the middle here, uh, Christ above culture. If I can, can hear, this is the Roman Catholic approach. Culture is corrupt, but can be locally cultivated and, as necessary, subjugated to the point that Christ's higher ethic is recognized and, re- and embraced by general culture. So what do I mean here? Perhaps you could put the word nurture into your margin here. Okay? The idea here is, yes, there's there's corrupt people, but if we can get them get them in, in sort of large swaths of them baptized under uh, the, the, uh, the tutelage of the church, and if the church, for instance, can also uh, rise in power and strength, uh, that it can actually influence then governments, uh, then that's a that's a positive thing. We can sort of nurture uh, society towards its utopia. Okay, and that's uh, like I say here that the, probably our best example there would be uh, Romanism, uh, particularly in the medieval period where uh, where the church really leaned hard on on civil governments, nations, kings and actually had probably had more to do with ruling the world than the kings did in, in Europe. Which leaves us then with the last one here, which I think is probably the most fruitful, 
And that is Christ and culture and paradox. In this view, culture is corrupt, but it's inescapable. You can't possibly escape being in the world, even though it's corrupt. Christ and his followers must be in it, but not of it. Uh, traditional Lutheranism falls in here. Uh, certain forms of amillennialism, sometimes two kingdoms theology, fits in here as well. And so the idea is that the that the church and uh, the the church and the and the and the state of the church and civil society uh, retain their disparate places, and neither one is trying to influence or usurp the role of the others. And this seems to be the best place to put the dominion mandate. So the dominion mandate is a civil function, not an ecclesiastical one. It's not the church's responsibility to carry out the dominion mandate. It's mankind uh, collectively uh, uh, that their responsibility to carry out the dominion mandate. Thoughts, questions on that? I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back a little bit, some of the social injustice stuff because I feel like that's so big right now, yeah. everywhere. And um, so I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. When we say the church, our main role is the evangelism, like you're saying, do you think the church has any sort of role with, because I feel like, you know, there's so many churches now who, like we're saying, maybe value that over the evangelism, yeah. but is there any sort of value we should put into it or um, do we participate in it at all or do we just leave it to maybe organizations or different avenues yeah good question yeah I mean like the question earlier if the scripture speaks to it then certainly we can speak to it here okay Okay? so if if the bible establishes what justice is which is huge I mean that's a huge issue right because much of what goes on under the name of social justice is unjust, so, so, so it's so in establishing what justice is, um, and I think being the, the the church should be a microcosm of what things ought to be like. Okay, it should be a place where there isn't racial division. It should be a place where there is not the oppression of women, or, or, or whatever the case may be. So, in microcosm, we should we should be able to model that in microcosm in the church. But it's not the church's collective responsibility to go out and establish justice. Okay, um, so you know, let's 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 throw one out here: um, abortion. Okay. Church's responsibility is to establish for people what what abortion is, why it's wrong. The Bible says we can we can establish it very plainly. Uh, there's no question in, in any believer's mind the the wrongness of abortion. Um, if in fact that happens in the confines of this church, it would be a matter for church discipline. It would have to be. Okay. Um, as Members of our society, we should be concerned uh, that uh, people not be killing babies. Okay, so I think it's a, uh, certainly a, a a valid thing for you to go out 
and be a participant in some sort of initiative that is going to reduce the number of babies being killed. Okay, whatever that may be, and I'm not going to try and get into all the possible ways you could do that, you know, rallies and marches and uh, working at crisis pregnancy centers or, or just, you know, there's a lot of different things you could do, okay? I think that's that's certainly within your purview as a as a, as as a as a as a good citizen of this earth, and because you're a Christian, you should be a really good citizen, better than the average. So you should be probably more concerned about this than your pagan neighbor who may think that abortion is wrong, but you have greater reason to think it's wrong, right? But I don't know that we should go to the, the step of saying the church needs to sponsor initiatives to establish this form of justice. Okay? Uh, that That's where I think we, we sort of cross lines that, that shouldn't be crossed. Okay? And, uh, you know, I, I, I determined a few years ago that uh, whenever I whenever I criticized uh, the ecclesiastical uh, pursuit of social initiatives... I was always going to come around and say that doesn't mean that those things are unimportant. It's just that that's an individual and a civil matter and you should be engaged in it, but not with the church's resources or as part of the church's mission. I don't know if that no, answers. it does. It, it helps clarify your personal role in it because I right. think like what you're saying, the lines are really blurred right now. And right. It's just really confusing to know what... But, you know, that helped. Yeah, good. Okay. Number two, then. Restoration of dominion is not the means of establishing the kingdom. Okay, this has been a a long-standing thought within many in the Christian community. If we can just restore dominion, if we can get, you know, you know, Christians in the in the White House and Christians in the Supreme Court, and and if we can, you know, get Christians in charge of GM and and all that, if we can if we can do this, then we'll we'll set the stage for the kingdom to be established. But it's actually not that's that's actually kind of opposite what we we should expect. Rather, the establishment of the kingdom is what ultimately will restore dominion. So once Christ comes and establish his kingdom, that is what is going to reestablish the order uh, that uh, we was lost uh, when Adam sinned and the dominion mandate become became terribly difficult. Okay? So there's going to be fa- fantastic agricultural success in the kingdom, even in traditionally barren climates. But it's not as though that is going to bring about the kingdom. Rather, the kingdom bring about, brings about that. Okay? Uh, and and so so on and so forth. Okay. So that's the dominion mandate. But there's other responsibilities that are sort of wrapped up in this passage as well. And some some questions that uh, come up with these. God said to them, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth." First thing I want to establish here that this word for filling does not have the sense of refilling or replenishing as some. Some translations have it. Um, actually, it's 
it's one of those one of those things where some of the older translations actually have a little bit of theological interpretation going on that probably oughtn't be there in the translation. It's not a matter of refilling the earth. Uh, the idea was that there was a, a previous the, the earth had a previous existence got destroyed and is being restored and so it has to be refilled uh, that's not the idea at all of this wor- word there's no sense of re here it's just fill so uh, so fill the earth okay just, which sort of brings us to the question here perhaps it's a delicate question um, is the command to fill the earth binding today I mean is 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 there ever a sense in which we can say, you know, the earth is full. We can we can sort of relax on this one. Okay. Well, it seems that the commands to both fill and subjugate the earth are perpetually binding. At any rate, it would seem hermeneutically impossible to say that one is binding and not the other. So either all of these things remain in place or none of them do. It doesn't seem possible for us to say, yeah, we're supposed to keep subduing the earth, but filling the earth, we don't do that anymore. It doesn't mean, though, that God requires unrestrained procreation in response to this command. It's not as though you have to do as much as you can personally to fill the earth. That's not the implication that's there. Note the following. The command seems to anticipate a modestly inflationary view of humanity. Flourishing cultures tend to multiply. Cultures that fail to multiply multiply inevitably decline. We've seen this you know countless times in the history of the world. Now you say, well that doesn't seem like it's going to work because if we keep multiplying and multiplying, eventually they're going to get too many. Uh, but uh, it, it seems that the 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 what, what tends to happen when we when we multiply, when we flourish, we tend to produce wealth, we pr- tend to produce more food, we tend to be able to take over some of the barren portions of the world and actually make them productive. Uh, there, there seems to be something good about the multiplication of persons that typically results in advances within culture. Okay, and we've seen this multiple times. Okay, so a modest inflationary view of humanity uh, seems to be what God has in view. A healthy society is a growing society. But the command is not for the race as individuals, but for the race as a whole. Okay, so it's not as though each person has to feel this weight of obligation to not only reproduce oneself, but actually multiply. In fact, I knew there was... There's some who would suggest that if you only have two children and you haven't multiplied, you've only replaced yourself. In order to multiply, you have to have at least three. Um, I don't don't think that that's that's an implication here. Uh, There is an expectation that as a society, as a whole... Uh, there should be this modest inflation, not individuals. We don't each have this responsibility uh, as separately, and we recognize, of course, that some persons, uh, because of, of you know, because of you know, factors beyond their control, are just not going to be able to reproduce. You don't have to feel as though you're somehow missing this because of that. Okay. While the human race should not be deliberately depleted, it does not follow that each person must contribute to its growth. Many, in fact, can't. 
Okay, but it does seem like that's the norm. Okay, and those who deliberately avoid, uh, you know, marrying and and having children uh, when they could seem to be in in, in the if I can put it in, in, in biblical, they just seem to be outside of the normal expectation of mankind. So, you know, yeah, grandpa, grandma. Encourage your, your kids and your grandkids to, uh, to 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 do this. I think we've got we've got a we've got a society that is on the verge of some bad things if we don't keep this keep uh, keep the family units uh, going and growing. But uh, that's China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that that proved to be very destructive. Of course, Paul allows that individuals would not marry, and if that's the case, not procreate, for the sake of ministerial expediency. Paul seems to indicate that he himself has this gift, uh, that he does not marry, does not have kids. Suggests that this command, though, is not absolute. So he has to announce, that the fact that he has to announce this allowance, though, suggests that it's not the norm. Okay, so... It is possible in unusual circumstances that persons would not engage in marriage and procreation, but it does seem uh, that the reason Paul has to put it out there the way he does is because uh, it's the norm to do those things. But the idea of the gift of singleness is probably not something you can really derive from this passage. Um, I know sometimes we, we come up with the, that kind of language to uh, make us feel better about our our circumstances. I don't know who's out there, and I don't know what your your circumstances are, uh, but but it does seem that the norm is to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, we also have to make sure that we can uh, weigh this command to multiply against other commands as well, such as providing adequately for one's family. Uh, while on the one hand, we must guard against selfishness and the avoidance of responsibility in failing to procreate. You know, I, you know, I might run out of money so I won't have any kids. We also need to guard against the opposite, uh, the negligence of procreating irresponsibly. Uh, but in the main, uh, the Bible seems to be quite positive towards the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, and it is part of the expectation of the whole race moving forward. So it does seem like it's got to be most people doing this, or it's not going to happen. Okay, thoughts on that? That's no, a delicate topic. Third responsibility, or second, another responsibility here is to cultivate the garden. Work, okay? Men, <laughs> teach your boys that the responsibility of man to work is not a result of the fall. <laughs> it's a privilege. Yeah, yeah, right, Dad. Yes, it is a privilege to be able to work, and it's afforded to men with and without without this privilege of working, uh, mankind is robbed of his true dignity. Okay. I think I have it. We, we, we see in the creation account where true dignity is to be found for men and women. 
True dignity for men is found in their work. True dignity for women is found in their commiserative relationship with their family, with their husbands and with their children. That does not mean that there can be no satisfaction gained outside of those spheres, but that's the primary means whereby women and men uh, can find their true satisfaction before God. Okay, And so men are to be working. Work is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes tells us this, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of his toil. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. Work can also be a source of joy. Ecclesiastes teaches us this as well. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given to him. This is his reward. The reward is the work. There's reward simply in the doing of work, accomplishing things, building things, subduing things, uh, and and exploiting those those resources that God has given us uh, so that our world is a better place. That is what, that is, that is the joy of mankind. And then thirdly here, work is profitable. Uh, Proverbs 14.23, all hard work brings a profit. So work's a gift from God, it's a source of joy, and it's the, uh, the, the means whereby uh, we can be profited and to uh, you know, enjoy further of the life that God has given to us under the sun. So cultivate the garden. So do work. Subdue the earth is not just a general... You know, a general expression here. It's an expectation that men, uh, particularly here, and not, I don't want to exclude women here, but this seems to be prior, something that's that's directed specifically uh, to males. Work hard, and the harder you work, the, the you know the better you feel sometimes. I mean, I, I know you can overdo it, but uh, but uh, hopefully that's the way you feel about it, and you don't find work a drudgery and teach, like I say, teach your boys uh, to think in those terms as well. Okay? So cultivate the garden. And then eat the fruit of the land. another responsibility here. There was no zoological death before the fall, so right up front here at least, man originally had a vegetarian diet, and until the flood takes place, which is a period of a couple thousand years, this maintained, this remained God's expectation. Only then did God introduce meat to man's diet? Genesis 9, uh, God said, you know, kill the animals, eat them, and it's okay. So uh, don't, you know, I, I know we could probably say some things about being vegan or, and, and vegetarian and all that, but uh, the fact is that God, God has, since that time, given us uh, the permission uh, to eat the meat, uh, even though the original mandate was eat, eat the plants. There's one last responsibility, though. It only takes up one line here, but it's an important one. Abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll tease that out a little bit further below. Questions more on the... Uh... Yes? Well, after Adam sinned, then God clothed him with mm-hmm. animal skins, right? Yes, did God kill the animals, or did He just create the? I mean, just come up with no. He could, he slayed. He's yeah. No, it says right there that He killed them. 
So was that any indication that they could eat the meat or no? Uh, no, not, not apparently. Uh, that, in fact, probably it would have been just a terribly startling thing for Adam and Eve to see these cute, cuddly animals that hopping all around and, and not having any fear of mankind and being uh, perfectly compliant and they're slaughtered in front of them. That would have been a very sobering event for them. That's a but, well, right, because we're seeing the response, we're seeing, we're seeing what, what ends up happening because of their sins. They're seeing immediately the results of their sins. Now, the son died as a result. They died. The animals died, too. Um, yeah, we could say a little more about the sacrifices, but probably not for now. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like there's any implication that they were now allowed to eat them. It's not until we come to uh, to to Genesis nine, where Jesus, where God says to Noah, "Just as I gave you every green thing, now I give you every animal field for food." Uh, that seems to be when the permission is granted to eat animals. Okay. Some words here about the freedom of the will. We've already introduced this, so I think we have enough time to get this done. Um, but uh, I know this can be a, uh, a a topic that can generate questions and discussions. But we've already sort of introduced it, so I think we can we can rush through this here. Freedom of the will. Man is a moral agent. Okay, firstly, we're endowed with the power to make ethical choices, to perform corresponding actions within the, our created realm. And this agency is not illusory, it's real. Okay, We have the power to make ethical choices, and usually most people don't have a problem seeing that. Okay, um, We make choices. That's part of being a person, right? Part of being the image of God. But each one takes a little step further. Man is a responsible moral agent. God communicates in words certain responsibilities that man has, obligations, and the consequences. Equips him with a conscience that communicates moral ought. This is, the, this is an awareness of right and wrong in ethical matters. And a corresponding awareness of approval or guilt in the face of actions. You know, our consciences either approve or disapprove. Romans 2.14 says, right? So we have these consciences. Uh, that So it's not just that we make choices in ethical matters. We actually have informing sources that tell us these are the things you must do, these are the things that you must not do, and so we're not just moral agents. We're responsible moral agents uh, with expectations uh, delineated for us. Thirdly, man is a free moral agent. Here's where the, uh, the rub comes in. Responsibility is predicated on freedom. Okay? If, if someone is going to be responsible for God, there actually has to be some level of freedom. Man willingly does all that he does, or else he is not the instrument of his own actions and would not then be responsible for his own actions. Okay, So we're not robots. Okay, Doing uh, only what God causes us to. We're not marionettes that just have no control over over what happens. We are we are free moral agents. 
what we do, we choose to do, we want to do. Okay? That's what's required here for us to be a free moral agent and for there to be responsibility for our reactions. If I cannot help but do something, um, and I and I and I do something whether I want to or not, I can't be held responsible for that, right? You know, sometimes you see crimes where that where that happens, where someone forces another person to pull the trigger or or do something criminal, and that person is not held responsible because he's he's forced into doing that. It's under duress, and so therefore he can't be responsible for it if it's not done freely. Okay. So man is a free moral agent. Man's dominant impulse determines the character of his moral agency. All persons possess a complex of attributes which we call a nature, by which we're defined and which inform our every decision, which is why we see the kinds of verses that we have below. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the springs of life. Okay? Cultivate, nurture your nature, because however it is that you nurture your nature, it's going to actually result in action. Okay? Matthew 12, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Okay, so we have to guard our natures, because out of it, flows our actions. Mark 7, from within, from the heart of man, produce evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, evil things, proceed from within and defile the man from within, not from without. Ephesians 2, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Okay, so all persons choose according to their dominant nature, and we find then uh, that uh, most, you know, we, well, first we are born with a corrupted nature, and furthermore, we actually make it worse by cultivating that which is evil within our own natures. Okay, we proceed from bad to worse. We go from, if I can put it this this way, regular sins to unnatural sins. There's there's a there's a progression. Okay, why is that the case? Because our natures are corrupt, and we corrupt it further. Fallen man possesses only foul dispositions, desires, interests, motives, principles, habits. And these form the basis for all of his decisions and actions. We see here the mind set on the flesh is uniformly hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God and is not able to do so. I thought he had freedom. Well, yes, he has freedom to follow the dominant inclinations of his nature, but every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, if I can follow, if I can use uh, uh, Genesis 6, is only evil continuously. Okay, And so we have this statement here, Jeremiah 13. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? The answer, of course, is no. Black man cannot become a white man. 
a leopard cannot decide I'm going to have stripes like a zebra today rather than spots like a leopard. Why? Because that's their nature. Their natures cannot be altered. Okay. And so that's the conclusion. Neither can you, who do good, who by nature are accustomed to doing evil. Now, at no point does God oblige fallen men to act contrary to the dominant impulses of his nature. I think that's very important. It's not as though God compels people to sin or forces them to sin. All people, when they sin, choose to sin freely. They run headlong into it. They love it. Okay? They have freedom to choose, and they choose what is evil. Which is why we can talk about them being truly free. So freedom resides not in the power of contrary choice, the ability to do good or evil, but rather the power of spontaneity. I do what I want to do. So fallen people, men, women, as such, enjoy natural freedom of the will. I get to do what I want. All the while living in moral bondage to his own depravity. And everything I want is evil. Okay. Does that make sense? So the question to the, you know, sometimes you ask, does, do, do unbelievers have a free will? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, he has freedom to choose according to the dominant nature of his, the dominant inclination of his nature. No, in that he is bound by his own nature, and that nature is, you know, is incorrigibly corrupt. The converted or recovering man, the one who has been regenerated, has received from God a new set of dispositions, new set of desires, interests, motives, principles, habits. That's the that's the joy of being a new creature in Christ. We've been flooded with new dispositions, new desires, new interests, new motives that we've never had before. And it's a grand experience. Some of you are close enough to, to remember uh, that, that flood of new, uh, you know, new principles here that, that govern you. And these gradually displace the old. Okay, this is what sanctification is, right? Okay, the new interests, the new, the 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 the, uh, uh, the, 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 the new concerns, uh, uh, the new desires, the new dispositions, little by little displace that which we were. Okay, and that's what sanctification is, and it's that's why we call it progressive sanctification, because we nurture and we cultivate that which is good. And eventually that sort of squeezes out that which is good. Now, we're not going to achieve uh, perfection in this life. Nonetheless, there is real and genuine progress. I I always say that uh, uh, progress, we we should measure that in years and not in days, right? Because if you're, if you're looking at your life from day to day, you see. But hopefully, Having been a believer for for for, for time, over the course of time, you say, okay, yeah, it's been a rocky road, but you know there's been progress over the course of years, and I can I can see that. And that's 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 a that's a wonderful that's a wonderful evidence here 
of the uh, of the new birth and uh, of your of your growth in Christ likeness here. Okay, so the converted man has natural freedom and also moral freedom. He has the ability to do what is good. Okay, which inexorably grows out of the believer's death to sin. I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but the sinful nature. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay, and so we recognize that that battle is going on, but we're winning. Okay, and slowly, painfully slowly at times, uh, but there is progress to be made. Okay, so that's what we can say about the uh, the freedom of the human will. Do we follow up on that? Questions? Sort of entered into our discussion of sin, which is coming up in the next section of the notes here, but uh, uh, we're sort of setting the table for that. But man does have freedom, but he doesn't here, okay, doesn't have sovereignty. And that's what the point, the last point we want to make tonight. Free agency does not conflict with divine sovereignty or divine certainty. The argument is often made that human freedom necessarily denies divine sovereignty. So if I'm going to be free, then God must not be. So if I have the power of choice in time, then God must not. He must have ceded that authority to me and doesn't know what I'm going to do. Okay? Some Calvinists re- responding to these unbiblical alternatives deny human freedom entirely, rendering man little more than an automaton, so a robot. The mistake in this logic is in making uh, mistaking sovereignty for freedom. Freedom is not sovereignty. Okay, what's the difference between freedom and sovereignty? Human sovereignty. There, there can only be one sovereign in the world. Okay. Okay. The, uh, when we talk about God being sovereign. What we mean is not only does he choose according to the dominant inclination of his nature, but no one can stop him in the implementation of it. Okay? That's sovereignty. There can only be one sovereign in the universe. We're free, but we're not sovereign, as we recognize every day, right? There are certain things that we want to do and wish we could do, but we are prevented from doing by other people, by lack of resources, by any number of reasons why we can't carry those things out. So we don't have sovereignty because we can be stopped in the expression of our will. Uh, So only God has sovereignty. That does not preclude us having freedom, but it does preclude us having sovereignty. Okay, This is what John Murray, how John Murray responds, and this is what we'll close with. You can make a comment, though, afterwards. The answer to this question... Uh, is that, although we are not able to analyze the relations of God's foreordination and human agency, that we can discover and perceive the perfect concurses that obtains, yet we must maintain both without any infringement upon the province, reality, and integrity of each. Okay? Man is free, and God is sovereign. The foreknowledge of God presupposes certainty of occurrence. His foreordination renders all occurrence certain. By his providence, what is ordained is inalterably put into effect. Only within the realm of an all-inclusive providence is our free agency a fact. And only thus is it maintained. In God, we live and move and have our beings, a providence. 
in fulfillment of foreordained purpose is not only compatible with the freedom indispensable to our being, it is, indispens- it is indispensable to the existence of our freedom and never functions so as to interfere with it. That's uh, a, a mouthful there, but uh, there is no conflict between the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. Okay? There would be a conflict between the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man, but not the sovereignty of the freedom. Yes? Isn't, isn't that really, I mean, at the very heart of it, it is because we are free because of our sovereignty, because he, that he has afforded us that. Yes, right, right. But, but, I, but oftentimes what ends up happening is people say, okay, God is sovereign, so he has given us sovereignty. Well, no, no, no. You can't, you can't give someone sovereignty and remain sovereign yourself. Okay? So it's, the freedom that he has given to us is not freedom of the same kind as his own. But it is true freedom. It is genuine freedom. Okay. Okay. I know some heavy stuff this week, but let's go ahead and uh, uh, call the night.